This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Leadership Lessons. Just a content warning ahead of the episode, we do discuss family and domestic violence as well as sexual assault in some detail. If it does raise any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. A reminder also that if you are in immediate danger to call 000 and if you need any help and advice, you can also call 1-800-RESPECT or 1-800-737-732. Thank you for listening. With an alarming number of Australian women and children experiencing family and domestic violence in Australia, proactive violence prevention programs have never been more important. My guest today was born into the cycle of family violence and has spent many years campaigning and advocating for women and children in this space. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. I'm joined today by Mel Thomas, the founder of Key Up Project and a woman with more than 20 years of specialist defence training in Hapkido, Korean martial arts. In this conversation, Mel shares her personal story and explains her passion for violence prevention, something she brings to life in her workshops held in schools, universities, workplaces and communities across the country. Mel Thomas, welcome to the Women's Agenda Leadership Lessons podcast. It's so lovely to have you here today. It is so lovely to be here. Oh, I'm so glad that we're speaking to you. I'm going to start today by acknowledging that I'm coming to you from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my deep respects to Elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their ongoing custodianship of this land and their connection to land, sea and air. And also like to recognise that this is land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land, land that was never ceded and sovereignty was never given away. Mel, where are you coming to us today from? I am coming from the beautiful land of the Eora Nation, the Gadigal people, and it's a rainy day. Um, I am a woman in her 40s with blonde hair, hazel eyes. I'm wearing a bright gold jacket today and a big smile. Nice. And she is wearing a big smile. So Mel, a lot of people may not have heard of you. You've described kind of how you look, but what is your story? Can you share a little bit of your story with us and what brings you here today? Thanks, Shirley. My story started 25 years ago. I walked into a martial arts class with zero intention of wanting to help anybody. I barely was able to help myself. I was born into family violence. Uh, I had a front row seat to unhealthy relationships. My dad drank too much. He gambled money we didn't have and he used his fist too often. And I was bullied in high school by girls that I found out years later were also victims of their father's abuse. And so to stand up to the bullies, I joined a group of kids that were in a gang in the city and I honestly started to become this person that I didn't like. And so it wasn't long before I found myself running from those people straight into these dysfunctional relationships and controlling young men. Then I was 19 and my best friend and I were walking through Darling Harbour and uh, we were set on by a group of young men on a Bucks night and the assault made national headlines. 
was painted as a man-hating victim out to ruin fun for men on Bucks Nights. And I never considered myself a victim, not once, surely. I wasn't a victim of domestic violence. That was my mum. I wasn't a victim of bullying because that was just girls being mean. And I wasn't a victim of street violence because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And when it came to my relationships, I just should have known better. Do you still think that, that you should have known better? It feels like you don't have to be that hard on yourself. Yeah, but that's because I grew up at this time when we had all the excuses to accept violence against us. There wasn't any campaigns. There was no special days, no International Women's Day. There's nobody who's marching down the streets for our rights. Didn't talk about it. We brushed it under the carpet. We didn't talk about it. And I remember when I interviewed the police for a story I wrote and um, I said to the senior officer what was going on at that time, he's like, Mel, the cops were told not to clog up the courts with all the domestics. It was just a completely silent epidemic and I meet people that have the same story as me and I meet people that can't believe it. It was so normal. You know, I did some research for a story that I wrote for the Herald Sun and I came across this report from 1989 from the Australian Institute of Criminology. How's this? One in three to one in ten families were living with domestic violence. In fact, it was a normal social behaviour pattern for many parts of our community. Yeah, that's awful. And the most alarming statistic I think now that is connected to that is one woman every week dies at the hands of her perpetrator. Yeah, it's a shameful epidemic that today, even now, 30 years later for me, and having escaped the violence, um, intimate partner violence is still the leading cause of preventable death for girls aged 15 to women aged 44. Obviously, you've turned all that around and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, Mel. But what are some of the, one of the things that we talk about on this podcast for other women is our resilience and kind of coping with situations that are tough. And that can be anything from, you know, a career issue or a family issue, domestic violence. How did you cope through that? What mechanisms did you rely on internally or externally to get through? I think there's a great misconception that people that suffer trauma or hardship are weak. I actually have an incredible sense of intuition and street smarts that got me through that time. But also I looked at my mum, right, who escaped an incredibly traumatic experience with her children. Um, She rebuilt her life. And I remember thinking, she's strong, I'm strong. And it didn't define me, although it kind of did. You know, I was embarrassed and I was ashamed about it. I remember going into, you know, the next stage of my life in my 20s, just being very vague about my childhood. And it wasn't until I had my daughter that I sort of looked around and I thought, oh, my God, you know, what must have been going on for my parents then? And look what's happening now. And I just couldn't look away. That's when I applied to Lane Beachley Foundation, actually, and I um, applied for a scholarship. And that's how Key Up Project was born. Yeah, nice. And we'll get to Key Up Project in a minute. But you talked a few minutes ago, you mentioned that you walked into a karate class 25 years ago. Tell us about the woman that walked in and the woman that came out at the other end. Okay, so I was on a date with this guy. It was been our third date. 
and he took me to a martial arts grading to show off. So I was sitting there on the floor of a dirty gym uh, and at that stage he was well-educated, well-mannered, very attractive, picked me up in a car that wasn't stolen, which was a big win for me back then. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always honest. Uh, So there I am sitting on the floor watching this guy show off and I was impressed. But then there was this woman and she was standing in the middle of a group of multiple attackers. It's called multiple self-defense. And it was like Kill Bill. It was bodies flying everywhere and she's shouting. I was like, oh, my God, I want to do that. And up until that moment, it had never occurred to me to learn how to protect myself that I could. How old were you when you walked in? I was around 19 and, yeah, and so I went along to these classes. And If you've ever done any sort of martial arts, you'll know that you thought you knew what your left and your right was. (laughs) I've never done it, but already you're (laughs) indicating to me that I would have problems. (laughs) And I didn't know what I was doing and I spent more time on my backside than I did upright and I went three-hour classes three times a week and I absolutely loved it. I learned all the things that have been missing in my life, accountability, like a real inner self-strength and self-worth was growing. I felt respect for myself. I felt respect for others, but mostly I felt a sense of belonging, which I hadn't realized was missing until I had it. So there was this you know, young woman who walked in and like a fighter, And I feel like I came out like a warrior through that experience. I learned about triggers. I'll never forget. I was training for my first tournament and they kitted me all up and I was in this sparring session and my opponent landed a kick to the back of my ribs. And I remember I went down on the ground and I burst into uncontrollable tears and everyone's looking at me. And I didn't know what a trigger was. Were you hurt? I was triggered. Like that kick didn't feel like martial arts. It felt the same as when my dad kicked me. And I remember the instructor was saying to me, Mel, we're going to stop, we're going to stop. And I was like, no. And in the sort of great karate kid moment of 1999, I said, no, I want to keep going. And I did and, and, you know, it all finished and there was nothing else that happened. But I learned something that day. I was never, ever going to be able to control the violence of the past. It was always going to be there but I could control my breathing. Uh, I could control my mindset in the now. So Hapkido has given me so much and that's why I'm so passionate about paying forward all the things that I've learned in my martial arts journey to stand up for myself and to speak up for others. And I think that it really resonates with a lot of people, particularly Indigenous kids, that I work with because nobody wants to be told what to do. Kids don't want a laundry list, but they want to hear real life. You know, they want authentic stories and they want authentic strategies and skills and tools to actually get through situations that don't feel right. And at the end of the day, I have a strong view that actually all we want to do is belong. We want to belong to something, whether it's you know, work or family, friends, like we all have different things that we belong to. But that sense of belonging is so vital to our own well-being and our happiness and our sense of empowerment. Because it's when you don't feel belonging and you feel excluded, as you did when you were growing up, that you don't belong. I think that's where 
our resilience breaks down and where we are most vulnerable and not vulnerable in a good way. Yeah, I think it's hard enough to go things alone. One of the impacts of family violence and my personal experience was the erosion of like my self-worth, you know, when the people that you love the most, I mean, obviously my mother was amazing, but when you're a kid and the person that you love the most who's supposed to take care of you lets you down, like your self-esteem is really impacted when you do it on your own. It's too hard. Life's too hard on your own. You need your community. And when you've got a lot of adversity to overcome as a young person, it could be easy to find a sense of belonging and community with the wrong people. It's actually easier to do that than it is to find that sense of community with the right people that build you up. And then when you've got it and it feels right, it changes your life, changed my life. So tell us about the other end. You do these martial arts classes, you feel empowered, you've got a sense of respect and self-worth. What do you do then with your life journey to turn it all around? Because your first 19 years, as you've described, were really tough. How did you turn it around? And now here you are, you're on a podcast, you're writing for newspapers, you're running this great organisation called Key Up, you're empowering tonnes of other women. I think you're also, through your work, empowering men. And I'd really like to talk to you about that because I think you have created a space where we can talk about what it's like to be a man and have some of those feelings and be dealing with those situations. So tell us how you turned it around. There was a lot in there, lots of questions in that one question, but let's start with how you turned it around. Shirley, the way you just said, you know, that space is so vital. It's so important to what I believe in, what I stand for, what we do, particularly when it comes to men, to hold space and to just Drop the judgment, I think, is at the heart of everything I do with whether it's working with kids in the community or working with corporates, especially working with men, Um, creating that judgment-free space and keeping it real and breaking the silence. And I didn't set out to do this. It wasn't like I found my life's purpose. I'm going to go ahead. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and keeping it real and saying my perspective, and I think the reason so many men relate is because when we talk about family violence, we often talk about the man as the perpetrator, and statistically it is. But we forget that it's men's violence against men, women, children, and that men were once boys that often were abused. And when I talk to blokes about domestic violence, I'm not talking to them as the perpetrator because I I don't know them, but I am talking to them as someone like me who grew up with an abusive dad and didn't know how to deal with it because we never, you know, it was so much silence around it. There was so much stigma around it. And I can't tell you how many guys reached out to me after that story I wrote the Sydney Morning Herald around sport and domestic violence. And they said, you know, I always feel like when this conversation's had in the media, I'm a bad guy, I'm doing the wrong thing. But I think when we talk about it as, hey, maybe we all started out like this and some people have continued that cycle. It's so hard to get help as an adult, so hard to deal with parents as you get older as well. I mean, they're still there. Yeah, absolutely. Mel, for those people who are listening and don't know what you do today, can you give us a little bit of an outline of what it is you do today, your organisation Key Up and your broader work? Uh, Well, my passion is ending the cycle of domestic violence in the country from my own personal experience and from 
the lived experience of the thousands of women and children and men that I've worked with. 2013, I started the Kiop Project. I asked myself two questions. What if instead of being embarrassed and ashamed of my personal story, I owned it? And what if I could take my 25 years of special self-defense training and create something that would help break that cycle? And I've worked with over 10,000 kids in schools and community groups all over Australia. And then when the pandemic hit and I couldn't do all the face-to-face programs and I was getting all these calls from a lot of the community organisations that I work with and they're saying, how can we help people? We can't reach out to them. Because if you're living in crisis already, the pandemic with social distancing and work from home was the equivalent of throwing away the key. You know, it was like hell. Yep, absolutely, because all of a sudden you've got people trapped in a situation they can't escape and they can't go anywhere. They couldn't, they couldn't go and they couldn't reach out and I use like a buddy system in Kiot Project and then I was talking to some of our NGO partners and we created like a buddy system for them and then I expanded that to corporates and I looked around and found out that 65% of corporates don't have any domestic violence policy. And to be honest, I was talking to my mom and we were talking about the pandemic and she said, oh, if this happened to us, we wouldn't have escaped because if it wasn't for my mum's work colleagues and back in the day, like there was no DV policy, nobody talked about it, they literally passed around a hat to raise money for our bond. Her co-workers helped with her shifts and making time for us to actually escape and leave. And and it was my mum who said, you know, what about the corporates? What are they doing? And so I started talking to these businesses and how we could help people break the silence in corporates. And it's been amazing. I've been talking to a lot of these big organisations like Bendigo Bank and APRA and the ASX and putting a face to policy, talking about it authentically. Like it's not just a piece of policy that gets buried in an intranet. Like this is one in six women and one in 16 men dealing with it. If organisations wanted to implement domestic leave policies for the next decade, because that's a crucial part of what we should be doing, what does that look like? What are some of the hallmarks of a policy like that that work really well? So I think it's really important that businesses have domestic violence liaison offices as a start, like for big businesses. Um, The main things businesses need are awareness, training and policy, and you can't have one without the other. And when it comes to awareness, that means not just sort of copying and pasting a policy that you think might work. It's like really looking at your organisation, understanding that you have one in six women and one in 16 men that are impacted. You mentioned the domestic violence liaison officer. What's the role of the officer? I feel like businesses should treat domestic violence policy like fire warden training. So if you have liaison officers um, who are trained in disclosure, because disclosure is so important, it's really hard for somebody to overcome the stigma and the shame and just the control they're experiencing in their life to speak up and get help. And so businesses play a really important role 
in helping victims maintain their dignity and protect their privacy and to essentially rebuild their lives. So I feel like it needs to be simple and accessible and it needs to have a face. So when we work with businesses, we don't, we don't just sort of give them this policy, like we make it realistic for them and their teams. We make it practical for them to implement and we help leaders understand how to deal with disclosure, which is just so critical because in that moment, like that's personal. It may be that you put together a safety plan, but it's a really personal moment for somebody to disclose and to have these people as safe people, it takes something. So you've got domestic violence leave, which I think we all understand is really, really important. We've got a domestic violence liaison officer. We've got a policy and some training in place and awareness. What about economic support? Where do men and women in these situations get economic support? Is that something businesses help with or you see businesses helping with? Or Because that's you've alluded to it already that a hat was passed around for you. How can we ensure that men and women in these circumstances, women mainly, can get through these situations with dignity and with their respect intact and that we're supporting that? Well, Shelley, on average, it takes women up to seven attempts to leave an abusive relationship. We've got studies that show it can take 141 hours and up to $18,000. So it's a $2 billion business problem. And it's absolutely vital that businesses do what they can financially to support victims that want to leave an abusive relationship. From a personal perspective, there's also ways that people can access support as well outside of their business. And we like to advocate for community centres because they're at the heart of the community and they're in touch with all the organisations in your local area. So If somebody's listening to this now and they feel like they need help and their business doesn't have that policy in place for them and doesn't have that awareness, they can go to their local community centre and and get that support. Yeah, great. Let's shift gears a little bit. You said earlier that you didn't plan for this career. It just happened. One of the questions I always ask our guests is whether your career was serendipitous or planned, and you've kind of answered that. But How did you get from the kind of the end of your karate, the empowerment you felt at that point to thinking that that was a business idea? I mean, that's entrepreneurial in itself. It's personal. And I find that almost everything with my business is personal. I was working in advertising. I went along to this careers seminar. I had a newborn baby and and they asked me these questions. They said, you know, what what do you love and what are you good at? And I was like, I love girls. I've got this beautiful daughter and I'm great at martial arts. And I've won two Australian titles, second down, like I've really committed and I'm passionate about martial arts. And then this young girl came up to me in the break and she said, oh, I heard what you said. And she told me the story of how she'd been assaulted by a group of boys. And at the end of it, and I've gone to pieces, I'm sitting going, oh, my God, you know, and she goes, you know, goes, and I heard that you do martial arts and self-defense. And she said, what, what did I do wrong? And I was like, you know what? I've been answer, asking myself that question, the same question for the last 25 years. What did I do wrong? And um, that's when I applied to the Lane Beachley Foundation for a scholarship. And I thought if almost every kid in New South Wales can learn how to swim between the flags and protect their skin from the sun 
and they learn to drive a car. What about when a situation doesn't feel right? And I actually reached out to Surf Life Saving and I said to them, you know, well, what can I do? And they gave me a helping hand and and I started talking to, to kids around what was going on for them around their personal safety. And then I reached out to experts in policing and psychology and I built this program called The Kiop Project and we talk about intuition and boundaries and domestic violence and consent we do self-worth and self-defense so my mission is to empower young Australians to raise their standards and champion their safety and well-being and kiop means to shout it's a Korean where we use in martial arts and it's like the spirit of self-protection and I think just like you don't need to be a lifesaver to be safe on the beach you don't need to be a black belt to be safe in your relationships and on the streets. It's a great story um, and great transformation. Mel, as you're telling that story, it occurred to me that in the business that you're in, where you're talking to so many young people about their journeys and issues they face, they face and you're trying to empower them, that you're in a situation, you're putting yourself into a situation every day where you're opening yourself up to other people's trauma and other people's journeys. Firstly, I imagine that's quite hard, but also what's your self-protect mechanism? How do you not wear all of that? And, you know, my last role was in an organisation working with young Indigenous men and women, and it was so empowering and I loved it. But I took their stories and their journeys and I wore them on my sleeve and I felt them deeply. And that is empowering, but it is also a lot. Oh, surely it's kind of like the thing that motivates me. You know, there's stories and you would have the same experience. You know, it doesn't go away. These are real life people. And I think, I mean, I work in shelters and I do get a lot of disclosure. And I, I think for me, it was never, this journey has never been about me. Even to this day, when I work in the communities and I work with the kids, I don't spend time talking about me and my story. I'm like, I might talk about personal protection, but I don't have time. My time with them is about them. Uh, when I get disclosure, it's really, it never gets easy. Um, I think kids can, you know, their BS radar is through the roof. They know that I can walk the talk and they respond to that. They feel safe in disclosing. Disclosure doesn't get easier. And it's not, I feel like it's not about me. Which is probably why you're so successful, because it's not about you. You're a tool, but actually it's about the women and men you're working with. One last question for you, Mel. In the um, article I read that you had written, you talked about men's sport. I'm really interested to hear your views about men's sport and what we all need to do, not men's sport, but just sport in general and the environment that that creates for perpetrators or for men. What do we need to be aware of and what do we need to think about and address in that environment? I feel as though sport, like it's, it's a cornerstone of Australian community. For me, in my own personal experience, you know, when everybody was flying the flags and barracking for their teams, I experienced a heightened sense of vigilance. Look, I think when it comes to sport in this country, like we love it. I love sport. It's the cornerstone of the community. It's, it's the thing that brings us together. And it has such an important role in our health. 
right? You know, it, it's the thing that lifts us up. You know, when you look at COVID and the pandemic and we're all sitting there. I, I know people that never even watched a, a grand final in their lives tuning in and we, we love sport. It is a fantastic platform and an opportunity for us to break the silence on some of these social issues. And for me, it's domestic violence. I see, you know, mental health now getting a lot more um, airtime, particularly around football, whether it's the NRL or the AFL. And I think COVID has helped that. I think it has. Because we're talking about it so much more. But I, I just think we can still do more. I think one of the great things about sport is it brings together the good guys and let's just say the bad guys. The good guys can do more to step up and call out those harmful remarks and the attitudes which you, which you see so clearly in sport. And I think it's easier for women than it is for men. Uh, when I was writing that story for Sydney Morning Herald around the AFL grand final, a lot of the guys that I was talking to, I said, you know, how do, how do you want to respond? If, if you know if something's not right, you know, something doesn't feel right with the comments that your mate's making, they're like, oh, you know, I think I, think I know, but I don't know what to say. I think that's across everything, right, whether it's racism or discrimination or the issues we're talking about here with domestic violence. We all need to be more accountable. We all need to take responsibility for those comments that are said in passing around us and shut them down at the time. We do. Mel, you've been so courageous in sharing your story and sharing your journey with all of us. If there are men or women out there who want to talk to you, want to reach out to Key Up, their businesses want to talk to you, how can they do that? Well, they can jump along to our website. It's got funny spelling, kyupproject.com.au. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Mel Thomas as well. I'm very passionate about helping people help victims protect their privacy and maintain their dignity. And whether that's at school or in businesses or community groups, I love doing our self-worth and self-protection. I love actually doing these leadership workshops where people are raising their voice and tuning into our intuition, which we step over so much, and raising our standards. I'm not often left speechless after recording a podcast, but today's hour with Mel Thomas, recording her story and hearing about her journey, and she spoke about it with such courage and authenticity, was deeply moving. Domestic violence is so prevalent in our society. As Mel referred to, one in six women and one in 16 men are the victims of domestic violence. And it's incumbent on all of us, individuals, businesses, families, communities, to support and provide support mechanisms for people going through that. I want to really thank Mel Thomas for sharing her journey today. It's only by having real and honest discussions like this that we can bring these issues to the forefront and increase awareness about how important they are. This very special episode and the last of our guests for this season was brought to you today by Salesforce and produced by the very talented Alison Ho. Thank you for joining us on this series. We'll be back next week with our final wrap-up for the year and I look forward to sharing that with you. You can subscribe to Women's Agenda at womensagenda.com.au and we would welcome your feedback. You can reach out to us anywhere on social media at Women's Agenda or at my handle, Shirley Chowdhury. 
Thank you so much for joining us again today and we look forward to seeing you next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.